0: Welcome to Evolution of AI with Rhys Jones. Dive deep into the intricate world of artificial intelligence, exploring its origins, its impact on our culture, and its future trajectory. Let's get started. Welcome, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about AI and human rights and how uh, those interweave. And this is a complicated story. So I'm going to skim over some concepts that some of the factors that come into play of, of how to think about AI in terms of the internet, in terms of human rights, and in terms of the evolution of not just AI, but also society as a whole. And we'll start out with what are human rights? And the sort of a generally accepted list would be the right to life, the right to equality, the right to water, then concepts like private property and a healthy environment. And an open question is, well, do you have a right to electricity or do you have a right to internet? And these aren't all universal, but they're being debated as, well, is it a human right to have access to all these kind of things, a, a fundamental right? And that, these are open questions in a way. They did a survey of uh, around 29,000 people around the world, and 80% of them view the internet is a right, that people should have a right to have access to the internet, although nearly 40% of people have never used it. So even people who haven't used the internet still view it's a should be a human right. And what does that mean? Does it mean equal for everybody? Should everybody have a right to internet, no matter are they on Mount Everest or are they in the Down by the Titanic, or or what does that mean, a a human right? Is this everywhere in the world? And then what is the internet? Does it have a neutral point of view? Or does it have a bias in one way or another? And is information uh, excluded from it? Is it censored in many of the ways that things can be censored? And so these are the human rights of internet. And we'll talk about how AI plays into that. And in terms of technology adoption, here's a chart of the different popular technologies and how long they took to get it ad- adopted over the last 100 years. And electricity is near 100% of U.S. households, but much less than that in, in many parts of the world. And other things, people view refrigeration, for example, as something that's an essential technology, or much more so than cars or TV even. So that these kind of things way over to the right is the rise of Internet, which is approaching 100%, but it uh, still has a way to go. And then uh, ChatGTP has risen the fastest of any technology in human history in terms of uh, adoption or people trying it out at least and although it's not on this chart it it just uh, was released uh, recently and that the uh, internet uh, users uh, are not just in the u.s of course they're all over the world and we've passed where more than half are in other countries other parts of the world and some are growing much faster in asia pacific but the the overall growth of the internet access is exponential and has been since the 90s basically and internet is a kind of a a broad term but it it comes like the ARPANET which was uh, running in 1974 and then the TCPIP protocol which runs the internet was finalized in 1980 and the World Wide Web which many people think of as the internet was more or less specified in 1990. Of course, the internet is much more than the worldwide web and things like email or file transfer or other things go over the internet, but they're not using the web. And then there's many applications that have been built on top of the internet protocols, social media, and here's a way to break things out where the early phase of the internet, more or less in the 90s, was read-only web where you could read stuff but you couldn't really write stuff blogs and TikToks and whatnot and then there was the dot com bubble and crash and revival and that was largely root re- uh, driven by read write web which some people call web 2.0 and then the social media is is more specific examples of that and other uh, technologies but the web has evolved uh, over 30 years um, across these things and, and it's, you know, roughly uh, 50 years for the internet o- overall and the internet as is growing in other countries the language used on the internet is is obviously growing faster in languages that are not english but people around the world are learning english because it's the native language of the internet And so this creates some issues, but language is a last level interface to the human and the core concepts of what's in the data in the Internet can be expressed in English, but the transform translators can change it to any other language, either written or spoken or visual at, at the user's end near the edge. And so the historical data that's on the internet is largely in English, and it could continue that way, like it's also largely in in computer code, but the uh, interface to it can be customized to the user, both reading and writing. And then how the internet connects everybody is changing pretty dramatically in the last three or so years with more capable low-Earth satellite networking and the most obvious of which is Starlink. There's been satellite communications for decades, but the satellites are mostly far away from the Earth, and so it takes a time for the speed of light to go from Earth up to the satellite and back down, which creates a lag or a latency, they call it. And so by moving or making satellites that are closer to the Earth, the time up and the time back is much shorter, and, and so the performance of the network can be faster. And then by having the connections go from one satellite to another to the user, the speed of light through empty space is faster, about 30% faster than the speed of light through a fiber optic cable. So the 90s and 2010s have been up to like putting fiber everywhere, which was in the dot-com bubble, a, a hot thing. And this is starting to be replaced and, and performed better by going through low-Earth satellites, which you don't just go to one satellite and back down, or even from one through a series of satellites and back down. It goes up and down through land stations as well. So the path of a conversation on the Internet going from the U.S. to Europe is going up and down as well as satellite to satellite. And all of this stuff has to go much faster than you can notice, ideally. And the performance of these things is quite high. And Starlink uh, has their design proposals to put up 42,000 satellites, and they have about 4,000 up now. And so as they get more satellites in the network, the performance of the network will increase because there's multiple best paths or multiple paths, one of which will be best to get from one place to another. And a a way to just think about this is it's like the cellular wireless networks, but the cell towers are in the sky moving around and flipped upside down, where we're used to plugging into a wire in the wall or talking to a Wi-Fi antenna nearby or a cellular antenna within a mile. And those things don't move where in this case, everything is moving, both the satellites in the sky and the users on the ground or in the air or on a boat. And they have to keep track of how the connection is working, but the uh, system has gotten sophisticated enough to do that quite well. And so the internet's one way to view it, especially the web, is that it's uh, connected to people. And uh, something over the last 20 years or so that has emerged is, is what people call the Internet of Things, And so the things on the internet, which are not people, is also expanding faster than the number of people on the internet. And and so what is carried on the internet and, and what you can be conscious of and aware of is much more now than just people. And they can either be fixed or they can be moving. And so it's getting to be a complicated situation, but the protocols are designed to make it as invisible as possible as far as how it works, in that it just works, in that everything's connected to everything, everyone's connected to everyone, and 24-7, whether they're moving or still, and the routers and and protocols keep track of making sure that works in a transparent way. And in a sense, it's like building the nervous system for the planet with the nerves connecting to everything, and maybe not directly Just like your real nerves get close to your finger, but they can tell if there's pain coming from there, that maybe there's a blood supply issue or other things. But it's building a ubiquitous connectivity of everything to everything on this planet with what has been included so far. And so this is building like a a brain. And here's a a picture, an old 10-year-old picture of the routers on the internet that make sure the signals are getting where they need to go and and what the activity and if you can see well enough there's this is a 24 hour picture where as the sun moves across the earth, the routers where the people are awake are red and busy processing things. But then as those people go to sleep, um, those routers go to blue, which is uh less processing. And so there's the awake part of the world and the sleeping part of the world based on where the sun is and what the people are doing there. And the, the routers are like the, a brain image uh, of, or the activity of the routers. is like a, a PET or, uh, or functional MRI image of, of the activity of the parts of the brain location around the world that are largely affected by whether it's nighttime or daytime and the people are awake or asleep. But where the people are asleep, some of the routers and data centers are still quite busy. So you'll see in the blue regions, the uh, little spots of, of red or, or yellow, which are the servers synchronizing or other compute tasks that aren't busy with people. And so this is like the global internet as a brain visualized in terms of activity across the 24 hour day. So in in a way, it's like becoming alive. And so this is a new form of life. It's a new place. And, and people uh, like religions and culture and governments and laws and so forth are all of the expectation that it's the same as the physical place that we exist in. And it's not, it's uh, different dynamics. And this is uh, a video um Uh, from a friend uh, who who wrote this in the 90s, Declaration of Independence of the Internet. And it's, uh, I think, quite good and a little out of date, but I think instructive, for example, he uses the word cyberspace to talk about the Internet, which military people still do, but it's not exactly how it is. Declaration of the
1: Independence of Cyberspace, as written by John Perry Barlow. At the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, on February 8, 1996. Governments of the industrial world, you weary giants of flesh and steel, I come from cyberspace, the new home of mind. On behalf of the future, I ask you of the past to leave us alone. You are not welcome among us. You have no sovereignty where we gather. We have no elected government, nor are we likely to have one, so I address you with no greater authority than that with which liberty itself always speaks. I declare the global social space we are building to be naturally independent, of the tyrannies you seek to impose on us. You have no moral right to rule us, nor do you possess any methods of enforcement we have true reason to fear. Governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. You have neither solicited nor received ours. We did not invite you, You do not know us, nor do you know our world. Cyberspace does not lie within your borders. Do not think that you can build it as though it were a public works project. You cannot. It is an act of nature, and it grows itself through our collective actions. You have not engaged in our great and gathering conversation nor did you create the wealth of our marketplaces. You do not know our culture, our ethics, or the unwritten codes that already provide our society more order than could be obtained by any of your external impositions. You claim there are problems among us that you need to solve. You use this claim as an excuse to invade our precincts. Many of these problems don't exist. Where there are real conflicts, where there are wrongs, we will identify them and address them by our means. We are forming our own social contract. This governance will arise according to the conditions of our world, not yours. Our world is different. Cyberspace consists of transactions, relationships, and thought itself, arrayed like a standing wave in the web of our communications. Ours is a world that is both everywhere and nowhere. But it is not where bodies live. We are creating a world that all may enter without privilege or prejudice accorded by race, economic power, military force, or station of birth. We are creating a world where anyone, anywhere, may express his or her beliefs, no matter how singular, without fear of being coerced into silence or conformity. Your legal concepts of property, expression, identity, movement, and context do not apply to us. They are based on matter. There is no matter here. Our identities have no bodies, so unlike you, we cannot obtain order by physical coercion. We believe that from ethics, enlightened self-interest, and the common wheel, our governance will emerge. Our identities may be distributed across many of your jurisdictions. The only law that all of our constituent cultures would generally recognize is the Golden Rule. We hope we will be able to build our particular solutions on that basis. But we cannot accept the solutions you are attempting to impose. In the United States, you have today created a law, the Telecommunications Reform Act, which repudiates your own constitution and insults the dreams of Jefferson, Washington, Mill, Madison, de Tocqueville, and Brandeis. These dreams must now be born anew in us you are terrified of your own children since they are natives in a world where you will always be immigrants. Because you fear them, you entrust your bureaucracies with the parental responsibilities you are too cowardly to confront yourselves. In our world, all the sentiments and expressions of humanity, from the debasing to the angelic, are parts of a seamless whole, the global conversation of bits. We cannot separate the air that chokes from the air upon which wings beat. In China, Germany, France, Russia, Singapore, Italy, and the United States, you are trying to ward off the virus of liberty by erecting guard posts at the frontiers of cyberspace. These may keep out the contagion for a small time, but they will not work in a world that will soon be blanketed with bit-bearing media. Your increasingly obsolete information industries would perpetuate themselves by proposing laws in America and elsewhere, that claim to own speech itself throughout the world. These laws would declare ideas to be another industrial product no more noble than pig iron. In our world, whatever the human mind may create can be reproduced and distributed infinitely at no cost the global conveyance of thought no longer requires your factories to accomplish. These increasingly hostile and colonial measures place us in the same position as those previous lovers of freedom and self-determination who had to reject the authorities of distant, uninformed powers. We must declare our virtual selves immune to your sovereignty, even as we continue to consent to your rule over our bodies. We will spread ourselves across the planet so that no one can arrest our thoughts. We will create a civilization of the mind in cyberspace. May it be more humane and fair than the world your governments have made before. Davos, Switzerland, February 8th, 1996,
0: and read in New York City, July 30th, 2013. That still stands the test of time in terms of uh, articulating kind of a a conflict in a way of thinking about laws of of carbon-based physical nature versus ideas in a digital space. And these are information structures that are have different properties. In both cases, they're information. But in biology, things natural selection sort of chooses which collections of information survive and which ones don't. And this is a process called natural selection, largely articulated by Darwin, that still applies to digital information. And species of digital information, uh, just like different species of biological creatures. And Richard Dawkins uh, coined these as memes, which are uh, digital genes, in a sense, or information-based genes. And they, they're they subject to natural selection. They're subject to creating different species, which are collections of memes, and that those succeed in, and fail in over time in natural selection based on their their fitness, and largely their ability to reproduce. And culture, whether it starts as a cult or a culture or a religion or a government, is a collection of memes that, that at the intersection of these things is essentially AI, which is collecting the information that's in the biological form and the information that's in the ideas form and the memes, and then how those things, what is the ecosystem in which they survive or fail, and in the uh, case of biological evolution, the whole underlying mechanisms are, are really funneled through whether or not that set of genes reproduces or even the genes and memes reproduce. And so reproduction is the kind of essential uh, gateway as to whether or not uh, a particular set of ideas and, or a per- particular species of life continues or goes extinct. And so this is the case for biological species, but may not be the case for idea species. And Dan, in our recent science call, did mention that, that this is an idea of the, from both Darwin and from Richard Dawkins, that the ability to reproduce is where eros and the erotic drive evolution. And the, whether that's exactly the same in the Digital world or not is yet to evolve, but uh, it's not necessarily going to be exactly the same, although it's obviously a well tested billion year proven model. And so the breeding creates a lineage where historically, not just in humans, but in many species, like the breeding lineage of who were your parents and their parents and so forth, and what were their characteristics, determine how the social organization went. And this has been with agriculture change from it wasn't just your family, but powerful families for agricultural purposes controlled fertile agricultural land and breeding was adjusted to optimize the inheritance of land because land meant food and survival and all sorts of things like this. And so for the last 12,000 years or so, the evolution of culture and humans has been around land and the people who have the right family, get the most land, who have the most food, who then hold the most sway over society. And they push one religion or another, one form of government or another. But that's the last 12,000 years. And that recently is shifting maybe to money, which is an abstraction of not just land and security, but more abstract things like intellectual property. And land has votes and a lot of the electoral college in the United States is is voting weighted by land. So the people who have land get a stronger say and vote than those who don't. Money is the same thing where in the last hundred years, money and politics and voting have, have become more important than land control, and the politicians who can raise the most money get more votes. And the things that are still in development is, is, well, corporations are a form of life under the law that can't vote right now, but it does vote with its money and it votes in policy and other kinds of things. Non-physical corporations are becoming alive under the law, and it's likely that they'll win the right to vote. They already have on many topics, but it, the way we think about these things are like who gets a say in the survival and propagation and natural selection of ideas. And then there's new kinds of corporations and money. DAO is decentralized autonomous organization That can run without any people, in that it's a form of corporation that doesn't require people, and it's emerged from the crypto world, the decentralized world. And an example of a DAO is Bitcoin itself, which is a decentralized, autonomous thing that will run even if there's no people. It needs some people, but there are not people in the decision-making loops. Like there's no CEO of Bitcoin. And so, in a sense, it's an autonomous organization that is there there's no headquarters of Bitcoin either, that's decentralized. And so this world of how money and voting and so forth works in a virtual space emerging in these kind of systems. And those do voting based on either a proof of work where the voting is based on performance. And people are arguing that should be done in a way. Called proof of stake, where the people with the most money control the decisions, where the proof of work are the people who are the most capable, or not even people, the most capable result makes the decision. And so this is the old world of government trying to impose onto the new virtual distributed decentralized autonomous world, like an old concept of people controlling. And they use the argument is that it uses less energy, but it's mainly just going back to an old way of the people who have the money make the rules. And that then biases how, uh, how decisions are made and, and how the system works. And then the AI is like a, a corporation that is a or another entity and whether AIs will be given the right to vote on policy decisions and other things, they're already being consulted. But there'll be many different kinds of AIs, and do they get any kind of rights as, a, as an entity? And so the, the things that are being voted upon are things that relate to survival. Should we plant corn or tomatoes or the, the people vote on that? And if it's controlled by one like a warlord, they make the decision and their power succeeds or fails based on their decision. But historical things are based on survival. And then the ones that are more robust become a culture and create a government with laws and rules of how you're supposed to conduct yourself under the pretense of a, for the better the survival of our culture and our society. And the, there's two elements to that. One is the government side and the other is the religious side. And some governments are the same thing. Iran is an example. Um, where it's a totalitarian but fundamentalist religious-oriented government. And others like China, they've tried to remove the religious element and have everything done by the government. But the government plays a role in religion and what's the curriculum for the religion and the decisions of how they're made should be evidence science-based versus uh, uh, elected voting. And how those decisions are made, and then find their way into the curriculum of the Bibles or the school textbooks or the teachers' training is what's approved and what's not. So, the things that are on the approved part of the curriculum, and then the things that are censored from it. And the fundamentalist view is that some things should be concealed from the public, some ideas, some information, some concepts. And so that is not in a neutral point of view, objective description of the best way to survive, but the way that they're trying to manipulate the system. So the approved curriculum and censorship, whether that's in education and government or religion, affects these things. And then when it gets out of balance, instead of the whole culture, the whole government going extinct... There's this attempts of reformation or learning from mistakes and sort of Martin Luther uh, putting up a proclamation to how to reform the rules of the church created a speciation event where the Lutheran Protestant church split off from the Catholic church in a reformation, which was a kind of an argument about the approved curriculum and the censorship of that and how the system should work. And so these are dynamics of how these things are evolving. And another question that this way of looking at it brings up is the life expectancy of a of an organism or a species or a system. And does that apply to countries? Does it apply to governments? Does it apply to corporations? Will it apply to AIs? Is there a life expectancy for these organized systems that are persistent? And probably there is, having um Immortal species doesn't seem to work very well in biology in that in biology under natural selection, sex has evolved to mix things up on a recurring basis where if you keep things the same, it's with an environment that's changing, the sameness is a deficiency and it's been proven better or more survivable to have sex and death, which are the same thing that reboots the organization of the species with every generation. And that's like trees dropping their leaves seasonally. They could keep the same leaves, but if they drop their leaves and and then create new ones each spring, the new leaves will be slightly different, slightly more optimized for the situation in the future. And so the adapting to change is more survivable and robust. And so this history of inheritance and land and money and so forth is a resistance to the change where, as opposed to allowing things to change and adapting to them. If you say a corporation is like a platform, like the Washington Post is a platform, or Disney is a platform, and are these things, do they have life expectancies? Should they have votes? That's an open question, but odds are in natural selection, it'll be a more robust system. If they do have a life expectancy and they do have a way of sexual reproduction instead of immortal persistence, they probably will survive more resiliently. And other examples of things that are trying to hold the old way, which is intellectual property or copyright control or patents, are things that are ways to try and keep the right thing in the moment owned into the future. And these things were designed by law to expire. Copyrights last the lifetime of a person and patents much less than that, only 19 years. And so this concept of being able to extend those is a bit like the concept of being able to live forever, which is whatever it was, is stuck in an old ecosystem And can't adapt to the new ecosystem. And so there's a good reason for them to have a limited life expectancy and a way of having death, in a sense, which keeps the culture more adaptive. And similarly, the concepts like segregation and apartheid and strong borders are playing with these same dynamic tensions. And so the life expectancy of the Internet, there's the four horsemen of the apocalypse of people, and we've added a new one, perhaps, which is what will lead to the apocalypse of the Internet is all the regular horsemen of apocalypses, plus misinformation where we may not be that interested in living in the real life. And we may, like in a transcension kind of way, get all obsessed with watching TikToks so much that we forget to eat and we forget to breed. And that could lead to more attention on the internet, but the demise of humanity. And this is happening with the life expectancy of religions, where religions uh, monotheism is under under stress now, where it's worked for several thousand years,istic religions, and it wiped out the polytheistic religions. But it has a limited life expectancy, most likely, and may not persist. And so what's going to replace it? So this concept of life expectancy is not just in humans. It's in many species. And it's a natural cycle that can be viewed as good in that the new generations are adapting to a new environment. And the old generations are intended or expire. And that's a good thing. And so we're entering into this world of post-truth where ideas are based on not whether they're right or wrong or whether they're supported by evidence or not. They're weighed like in elections or with people voting. And as to what's most popular or the person saying it most popular it becomes of equal importance or even more importance than whether or not it's right or supported by evidence or so forth. And so saying the uh, credibility is less important than loudness or something, and, and you should have a vote as to which is right. And this leads to all kinds of confusion. <laughs> and so this popular versus uh, may be applying to these large language models and search and so forth, in that Google has been on the what's supported by evidence, what's credible kind of ranking system. And uh Google search uh goes through great effort to rank the results based on the credibility of the source of the results and not is this this politician saying that or is this the university of such and such with the Nobel Prize so and so having done this published three times this result and and so they're not equal they're not shouldn't be equally weighted but google has done a very good job i think of of going for what's the credible result and not what's the popular result and they may not be as good for memes or something but it's better for science anyway and one of the changes that's happened in recent times is money has become a proxy for credibility in elections, but also in terms of people's fame and their power. And that money is not credibility, it's more of popularity. But these areas get confused by this distinction. And what's popular versus what's right, the popular kind of ignores sort of the foundations of what's credible and what's right, which are what is the source of the ideas and the opinion. And so The AIs can play a role in this, but the uh, AIs, where do they get their ideas from? And the large language models are getting it from where the language is. And the language is in English. It's been on the web. It's in books and media and the news. And these tend to be centralized, controlled ideas. And what's emerged over the last 20 years is this concept called uh, open source and crowdsource where open source is the source code for your idea is disclosed and the crowdsource is that it's decentralized. So there's not the editor of the New York Times saying, we're not going to show you our research. This is what we found and this is the result. It's more the Wikipedia article that all of the references, you can read them yourself and the arguments about why the opinion is selected is there hidden a little bit. But the consensus is what rises to the top, and this has been shown, like in economics, to be a, a more reliable way to get to a consensus reality than a centralized, closed-source, edited system. And so the AIs are learning largely from centralized, controlled media. But the uh, fight now is is about the more credible, more valuable media sources, which are the the things like the crowdsource, open source software, where the the open source approach is clearly more credible and the software is clearly more stable and and less defensible, but more robust. And then the English language version of that are are discussions like on Reddit or Quora or or Twitter or Wikipedia, or even things on YouTube or in, in audio stuff that are, there's not a centralized control. It's an open source set of ideas that are argued about and debated about and consensus is arrived from that. And if the AI's bias, they're learning from the database of language that they look at to more open source things, they'll have a more higher credibility in terms of what they're searching rather than biasing towards popularity, like the most popular YouTuber, the most subscribed news channel. And so this is a dynamic tension also, where centralized media tends to have a bias one way or the other. And there's some that tries, like Associated Press tries to stay down in the dead center of neutral point of view news, where Fox News and CNN might be on two different extremes. But, but each news source, if there's a central editor and, and central ownership, tends to express a bias that it's like different species that are competing in an ecosystem and they'll survive or fail based on what how their ideas, but in the meantime, their survival and failure are based on the size of their audience because that's where the money comes from, either through advertising or subscription. And so AIs can be aware of these dynamics and factors and perhaps are a tool that in this really complex set of information can sort out popular sources from credible sources. Google does this already, it's yet to be seen whether the chat GTPs do this in a reasonable way. But problems have emerged where they have hallucinations and and they don't do good error checking. The, the problem of the information, the answers you get back from a large language model uh, are a blend of facts and opinions, just like people, And that people have hallucinations. They don't check for errors. And what they're expressing is really their opinion, even if they say it's a fact, unless they provide its source, then you can evaluate if you want. And so these hallucinations and error checkings, no doubt, can be fixed by AI, but then you're asking the AI to do better than humans can do, which is possible. And so this AI learning from the past and acting in the present moment and predicting the future creates essentially a history uh, that is learned from, but those projections create a fiction that may or may not be true. And so that's in the realm of cultural beliefs or, or religions or, or whatnot. And in the recent thousand years is adding science to that is, is basically only just doing error checking on religion. And so the error checking says that's the opinion now, but it's subject to change given new evidence. And so the internet is the substrate or the host for the AI, which this error checking of ideas can occur. And I already mentioned the open way is better. And the other thing is the old way of sort of church and state, the church has proven to be pretty good add uh, what are the rules and the path for survival. And the state has proven to be a little bit better, maybe. And depending on how it's implemented, either, either the church or the state, there are different methods of getting to the same thing about how, how to survive. And in a lot of modern countries, dividing the church and state as to, well, you can still believe the belief part, and let's just check the evidence-based part and navigate from there. And so this is a broken system that will evolve. The Another trend that, that's happening, especially with these AIs and money, is there's a new private state that may be more efficient than the election-based government states. So there's corporations which have a kind of an incentive and a, and a mechanism for operating. And there's this rise of mega-philanthropy which are uh, people who uh, have created a lot of money, usually from corporations who say, I'm giving it all away in my lifetime, but they're still controlling the money and they're only giving it away loosely. And most of their giving it away is actually investment in other ideas and the money recycles, but it takes it out of the hand of the voters and Then it's not the government giving that away. It's an individual's opinion. And so distinction comes with when you decentralize that decentralized autonomous organization, which is like a personless uh, corporation and an AI, which is like a smarter corporation, a, a new kind of mechanism that, that on the same principles as the internet, that there's no headquarters of internet. There's no boss of the internet. It's a decentralized distributed system that uses math and technology to function more than physical phenomena. These are trends that are the old and the new, basically. So open source is more evolution or biological evolution. And incentives can get perverted, like who owns this? And then how does that incent them to do something or another? And then I'll briefly mention about the case with OpenAI, which OpenAI was founded as a nonprofit that nobody owned that was funded uh, for billions of dollars uh, to be an open source version of AI similar to Wikipedia or open source software development that nobody would own that could be neutral in its bias, but it's not ended up that way where they changed it from a, a nonprofit uh, entity to a for-profit with the money coming from closed source corporations that are trying to affect the results, and so it's it's created a conflict as to well what is it? Is it philanthropic? Is it neutral? Or is it a money making machine for Microsoft? And is Google now having to respond saying we our money making machine needs to fight your money making machine, and, and the survivors will not be humans. <laughs> and so this is the conflict. So th- that's uh, some ideas that affect how AI and internet are, are affecting human rights. And one of the other kind of debates are human rights, the all important thing, or is life the more important thing? And so we should be protecting biological life or what about AIs? Should AI have rights? Should corporations have rights? Should they have votes? And so that creates a dilemma. Thank you for uh, joining us on Evolution of AI uh, with Rhys Jones. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. Stay connected as we continue to explore the fascinating world of AI. Until next time, keep questioning, keep exploring.